Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, matey? I'm very well, thank you, sir. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, mate. Pretty good. We are here. We and, are indeed. And we did release on Tuesday, goddammit. Yeah, we did. But Castos was being a prick. <laughs> That's the long and the short of it, isn't it? Yeah, apologies if you're tuned into any of the RSS feeds that's um, linked to our main feed on Castos because they had some uploader issues on Tuesday, our normal release. It would be on a Tuesday, wouldn't it? Yep. But um, we did release on time for future reference. If you are desperate to listen to us on the day we come out, and why wouldn't you be, let's face it, um, we were up on time on our Patreon page but the Castos uploader was being uh, difficult, shall we say. So we released uh, yesterday, which was Wednesday instead. But should this happen in future, you can always find our stuff on the Patreon page. It's not just the premium content. You can listen to all the free stuff on there. And there's a nice little embed player as well, so you don't have to download the MP3 or anything like that. And we'll but... be writing Castos a very angry letter telling them how angry we are. To be fair to Castos, yeah, I did email them. It did take them a day to get back to me, but I did get an email from the um, head of their development team, which was kind of cool. Apologising profusely. You say uh, a day later? Yeah. I mean, maybe if it was, okay, within a 24-hour period prompter, but if it's literally the next day, that's not that bad. Yeah, it's some, pretty, it's pretty Some people pretty. are way worse. I, I do fair. like Castos, to be fair. Yeah, yeah they, they did fix the issue and they did uh, re- respond to my emails eventually, so good for them. But yeah, in future, if we're not on time, do check our Patreon page because chances are we have made our upload. There's just something weird going on with our hosting provider. Anyway. Indeed. So yeah, how have you been, man? You good? Yeah, yeah, very sound. You good know, week so far? Yeah, just ticking over. Work is uh, flying by rapidly. So, uh, That's you good. Know, con- consecutively this week, cause some days drag, some, I mean, depending on mindset more than anything else, and mine's up and down like horse draws a lot of the time. <laughs> but no, no, I've been, been all right. You know, the weather weather's not been that bad this week. Yeah, it has been uh, rather nice, hasn't it? The, uh, the early days of summer. Yeah, it's, it's not been nice. too bad at all, quite yes, frankly. Absolutely. Okie dokie then. Well, let's kick off as we always do with some film news. First thing I want to talk about this week, I'm quite excited about this actually. Uh, This is uh, from digitalspy.com. Tom Hanks' new sci-fi movie with Game of Thrones director skipping cinemas for Apple TV. This is called Bios and um, it's directed by Game of Thrones veteran Miguel Sapochnik, who yelled action on episodes such as Battle of the Bastards and Hard Home. Wow. Yeah. Well, like two of the best episodes of Thrones. Well, they're big set piece episodes, which Game of Thrones was always traditionally quite good at. And yes, I would entirely agree with you. That was my first thought as well. Those are two of the best. Well, I mean, set, I mean, the set pieces in Hard Home is great, but I mean, the, one of the things that makes that episode is the ending. Mm. The very silent and very eerie ending. So, it's, I mean, I, I think that guy just generally has some great directorial chops. From those examples. Ah, doing a bit more reading into the article I really should have read more into earlier. I mean, originally went by the title Bios and is now being called Finch. So this movie centers on a man, Finch, played by Tom Hanks, his beloved dog and a robot as an unlikely family unit. Two-time Oscar winner Hanks plays Finch, a robotics engineer and one of the last humans on Earth following a solar disaster. Finch, who has been living in an underground bunker for a decade, has built a world of his own that he shares with his dog, Goodyear. He creates a robot, played by Get Out star Caleb Landry-Jones, to watch over Goodyear when he no longer can. As the trio embarks on a perilous journey into a desolate American West, Finch strives to show his creation the joy and wonder of what it means to be alive. Well, um, I hope that it's going to be a bit more riveting than News of the World. 
Yeah, you uh, you were a bit down on that one. I do like Hanks, but that film was just very by the numbers. Uh, it just I just didn't feel passionate at any point. Tom Hanks it. playing Captain Good Guy. That's yeah, it was a Tom. It was a very Hanksy Hanks vehicle, and uh, yeah, I, I didn't. I wasn't that keen on it. It wasn't diabolical, but I just didn't really think that much of it. But I do like uh, Caleb Landry Jones a lot as well, though. So yeah, that's yeah. Um, that's good casting right There's there. There's a lot of promising things just in that little synopsis right there. I think so. We'll be keeping an eye on that one. Yeah, so. sounds cool. Uh, this is going to make you happy, Liam. As his new film, Godzilla vs. Kong, opens Wednesday in US theatres and on HBO Max, after turning up a Hollywood film pandemic record $123 million gross in 38 overseas markets over the weekend, director Adam Wingard is set to direct, are you ready? Yep. Thundercats, the movie. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) Thundercats, ho! Uh, There's a big-scale feature based on the animated TV series, of course, that ran from 1985 to 1989. The project has been developed by Ryback's Dan Lin and Vertigo's Roy Lee, who were the producers on the Wingard-directed Death Note, which I believe you brought up the other week. Did you like Death Note? Death Note? Yeah. Was that one of the ones you referenced the other week? No, I talked about uh, Death Watch with Harvey Keitel. No, when I mentioned Adam Wingard, you mentioned a couple of his other films I hadn't seen. I presume Death Note was one of them. No, the guest... Ah, okay, the guest with Dan Stevens, yeah. No, I think Death Note, that's the one with uh, William Defoe, isn't it? Nah, nah. <laughs> Just nah. 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 Um, the series, of course, focuses on a group of cat-like humanoid aliens who live on the dying planet Thundera. The Thundercats are forced to flee their homeland. The film will use the animated series as a jumping-off point, but then Wingard will take it in a direction he's been thinking about for many years, apparently. Sounds kind of cool. I mean... Yeah. The Because I know that, see, when you were a kid... Uh, your major thing was Transformers. Was indeed, yes. Now, I never actually had that formative experience with Transformers, but I very much did have it with Thundercats exclusively. Mm. I know you like Thundercats as well. Oh, yeah, you used to watch that as well. But, um, yeah, but my, my, what was your... your Transformers for you was Thundercats for me exclusively. Yeah, yeah, so, I, had, I had all the toys. Oh, I was, yeah, I, yeah. I knew all the lore. It was... Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. One yeah. of those, one of those childhood formative things. But I did love Thundercats as well, and I have very fond memories memories of us uh, quite a few years ago now, a little bit drunk and a little bit merry, uh, re-watching Thundercats and joyfully discovering that as an adult, it is the funniest thing you could possibly spend an evening watching. Absolutely. And we were pissing ourselves laughing at both how bad and good yeah. it was at Snarf the same time. Snarf and uh, Mum Raw. Yeah. Who is, as a kid, you know, naturally kind of freaked me out, but now he's just comedy gold. The only thing I'll say about this potential movie adaptation is I hope that it gets the silliness. Yeah. I hope he doesn't try and do po-face Thundercats because that won't work at all. Yeah. But well, uh, it's, it's not it's not in the spirit of the material. It's deliberately it? silly. Yeah, there is yeah. there is an obvious silliness about Thundercats. It knew it and it ran with it, and that was what was great about Thund- it. So Thunder. Even when, you know, thinking about how the theme tune starts is just enough to start you creasing. If, as a kid, you handed me, like, one of those long cardboard tubes that you'd roll up, I know, Christmas wrapping paper with, some people pretended they were lightsabers and all that, and I'm sure I did that at some point, but primarily I was pretending it was the sword from Thundercats. Oh, yeah. The one with the eye in it. I can't remember its name offhand. But, yes, I was, um, was it it, Leo or something like that? The Lion-O. That's Lion-O, yeah, Lion-O, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and, his, <laughs> and his magic sword with an eye in it. That was me as a kid. So yeah, big nostalgia trip, I think. And I, I hope that he's got some humour into that. And we'll, we will see, I suppose. Maybe it will be a double take. You know, if when we get around to seeing the film, you know, it will be a, a dual review. 
because we haven't we haven't really done many of them. And seeing as it's, it's been a while uh, since we've reviewed something together, yeah. Seeing as it is something that is of uh, childhood importance to the pair of us, it might be worth doing a uh, yeah, but might uh, be worth a trip to the cinema together, mate. Yeah, we can and hold hands and a double takedown, and fingers crossed that it'll actually be um, worth watching. Mm. So yeah. Another article here, uh, Netflix closes the case, they must have seen my review, on Supernatural Holmes adaptation, The Irregulars. <laughs> oh yeah, that just sounded awful. <laughs> what was bizarre was a lot of people linked me reviews afterwards of people that really, really liked it. Um, uh, yeah, reviewers that were saying, oh, See, I, you're wrong. Yeah, See? Well, no, because they were, <laughs> mostly seemed to be agreeing with my consensus that it was rubbish, but sending me reviews of people that thought it was good. Mm. Um, so yeah, it yeah. did actually get quite good scores as reviews go. But apparently Netflix agrees with me because that's a one and done job. And apparently it got quite high uh, ratings, viewer numbers as well. I personally think that's because it came in a slot when Netflix hadn't really came in a slot. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, you know, you say something and you immediately check yourself. Um, but in a period when Netflix uh, was having a bit of a slump week and Irregulars was the, the big new thing, I think people were just tuning in because they were desperate for something new to watch. That's my theory on that one. Anyway, I thought it was tosh. I thought the acting was rubbish. I thought the plot lines were bollocks. And I thought the supernatural element didn't work at all and was an afterthought. And it seems that Netflix agrees with me. So I've really, I, this entire news segment is just me patting myself on the back. So despite decent ratings, the uh, Netflix head honchos have gone, yes, but it's bullshit. Seems to be. <laughs> yeah. You'd figure the ratings would be enough to save any show, wouldn't you? No, but, but yeah, well. There's uh, integrity, damn it. They've got rid of it one way or the other, anyway. A new movie coming up from Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, uh, is it Benedetta? Yes. Yeah, I like uh, Paul Verhoeven. The indie auteur's next feature is an erotic lesbian nun horror movie. Lesbian nuns. Erotic lesbian hun? Lesbian hun? <laughs> Entirely lesbian huns. Lesbian nun horror movie. Set to premiere at this year's Cannes Film Festival in July. Benedetta, originally titled Blessed Virgin, marks Verhoeven's first film since L in 2016. It follows erotic thrillers Basic Instinct and Showgirls in the director's filmography. The official synopsis from French distributor Pathé reads, In the late 15th century, with plague ravaging the land, Benedetta Carlini joins the convent in Pescia, Tuscany as a novice. Capable from an early age of performing miracles, Benedetta's impact on life in the community is immediate and momentous. Benedetta takes in a young woman to her convent and the two begin a passionate affair. I was actually chatting to a mutual friend of ours only yesterday and who was also a big uh, Verhoeven fan saying, oh, I see pervy Paul is at it again. Can't <laughs> wait to see this one. Yes. So, no, I, I do lo I love... He does like an erotic undertone. He does, does but Paul, I, I, lo I love Verhoeven's films. I really do, but he is a massive, massive perv. But, <laughs> but he, he just, he's good at what he does. He, he is very good at what he does. Sure. And some positive news here. Well, hopefully positive news on a film that is barely in pre-production at the moment and has just been rubbish by everybody, including us at a couple of points, just at the concept of it. This is uh, Indiana Jones 5. Oh, yes. But they have cast Mads Mikkelsen and apparently Mads Mikkelsen likes the script. So there is possibly something, yeah, I mean, he's being paid. So who knows how much truth is in this really, but this is about the only positive thing I've seen on the internet about even the concept. Um, Mads Mikkelsen said... I'm very, very excited about it. I rewatched Raiders of the Lost Ark the other day. It is so well done and so charming and it's such great storytelling. So yes, it's a great honor to be part of that franchise that I grew up with. I'm in a lucky position where they let me read the script before. And yes, it was everything I wished it to be. So that's just great. Well, intuitively, Mads Mikkelsen must have liked the script to chaos walking. And I'm sorry, I love you, Mads, but that was awful. 
Oh, not yeah, because of, Not because of him. Not because of any one person in particular, just because it was ropey as fuck, just in terms of every every other facet about it. So, I mean, Yeah, and I mean, obviously he's on the payroll for this and you wouldn't expect him to go, yeah, I'm about to work on the Indiana Jones film and the script's rubbish. But at the same time, he could just keep quiet about it, couldn't he, rather than saying it was everything he wished it to be. I know, but this is Mads Mikkelsen, man. This is a guy from Pusher, Valhalla Rising, The Hunt. You know, another round. You mm-hmm. know, this guy, I, I'm a big fan of the guy and he's made some truly excellent stuff. And, like, I mean, surely... Do we think Mads might be playing the villain in this one? Well, if he is playing the villain, then that would stoke my anticipation a bit. He's very he's good at villains, isn't he? I mean, he's quite often typecast in villainous roles, I think purely because he's European. And that sells well in the States to have you know, yeah. the uh, European villain. But, yeah, I mean... I, th- I think this film's received a lot of backlash before we really know anything about it. Primarily the concept of the idea of, look, those films are so well loved. To do them again with a, a modern take is just playing with fire. It has to be really, really good to stand up to the first three, especially after the travesty that was four. And also the constant discussion I've seen about the de-aging tech and sticking Harrison, you know, if you're going to stick Harrison Ford in that role again, great, but do it as the older indie. Don't do the plastic face thing. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, we kind of, even though I had a lot of positive things to say about the Irishman, what they do to De Niro does look weird. Mm. And you are never, ever, well, unless there is some technology that uh, they've got basking in a lab somewhere that only like top Hollywood's creators get access to that nobody else in the living world knows about, you are not going to make Harrison Ford look exactly like he did when he was deckered. No. You, yeah. you know, so yeah, I agree with you. Just roll with it as he is. The age he is. Yes, I know he's nearly 80, but... Well, it's about to start shooting now and we haven't really heard much from it in a while. So maybe, who knows, maybe they are going in that direction. But I've rarely seen a film enter pre-production with this much anti-hype, if you like. And so many internet commentators going, no, leave it alone. But, you know, we, we will see the end result. We've got a couple of years to wait, I would imagine. You can't really one. blame people after Crystal Skull, can you? Yeah, it's true. It's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the, it'd be weird if they weren't reacting For, that for way, a lot so. of people, that was their childhood ruined, you know, and I know it's bit of an overstatement, but that's genuinely how people... You know, I, I remember feeling something about that with the with the Transformers films and with the um, with the Star Wars prequels as well and with the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, funnily enough. Those sort of landmarks from my childhood. I mean, it's so difficult to play with that nostalgia, rose-tinted glasses thing anyway because yeah, happy memories from your childhood are always going to seem better than they were. But at the same time, legacy is important and sometimes legacies need to be left alone. But who knows? I'd love to see a brilliant new Indiana Jones film. I'm just not sure if that's the one they're going to be making, but fingers crossed anyway. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, as always. We shall go in as blind as we possibly can. It'd be nice if it was a redeeming one. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't that that be cool? That'd be a nice thing. Wouldn't that be great if at the end of our 2023 roundup list, one of the best films we saw all year was the new Indiana Jones? Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, I'm I'm not holding out much hope for it, but I am well up for being pleasantly surprised. Yeah, as always. All the time. As always. Here's to hoping. Anyway, that ends the news segment this week. Uh, Liam has a couple of film reviews as usual this week. Take it away, Liam. Thank you, sir. So, let's start with Voyagers. I know you're a science fiction fan. Are you familiar with Voyagers? No, I've seen it flashing up on my news feeds and I was intrigued. So, I'll be interested in this one. So, this is written and directed by Neil Berger. Neil Berger? Neil Berger, yes. Am I wrong for being unfamiliar with Neil Berger? I wasn't familiar with Neil Berger. <laughs> so that's why there's something... It's kind of name you'd remember as well. Something enormously remiss of me, or this is his first rodeo. I don't really know. I should, I should have really checked that, arguably, but I didn't. A new one on me, anyway. 
But yes, uh, so it's the year 2063 and global warming has gotten to the point, as it most likely will do, where the earth is fucked, not contemporaneously where it's like, oh, you know, we're going to be fucked, we're going to be fucked. It's like it has reached the point where severe floods and plagues are swamping the globe and humanity is desperately trying to locate um, a, another planet in the solar system for a rehabilitation, for journeying to a rehabilitation. And uh, they have uh, a spacecraft called uh, Humanitas, and essentially the plan that they've drawn up is that they have 30 children who were cultivated through some sort of um, like uh, ART, assisted reproduction technology procedure. I think they're all, they might be all IVF kids. They've essentially been lab grown, mm-hmm. all 30 of them. They have located another planet and they have worked out that it will take 86 years uh, to reach this new haven from Earth. And so the Humanitas is going to be a generation ship. The 30 little um, ART kiddies will get on and when they come of age, they will reproduce on the ship. Right. So, and then yeah. their children reproduce. So the plan is 86 years later, the grandchildren of what are initially four and five-year-olds that get on the ship at Earth Point, they will be the ones who reach the planet nearly a century later. So... Richard, who is a scientist played by Colin Farrell, uh, he announces to one of the project leaders at this NASA-esque compound that um, even though the kiddies are supposed to go up alone, he actually wants to accompany them. He wants to supervise them because they are so young and because there are a lot of perils potential perils on this journey that um, even though there's loads of contingency plans coming out of the arse for this mission, uh, he just wants to be doubly sure that he can be there to protect the kids should it befall them and uh, they they might not have the wherewithal to react to it quickly. And his superiors go, yeah, but, you know, you 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 will miss Earth. You've grown up on Earth. These, you, these kids have been um, especially bred and raised in a very controlled environment with no exposure to life's normalities. You've had that, so you'll go insane. And he's like, no, no, I don't give a shit. I want to go up there. I won't miss anything here. I, you know, I'll be of much more use up there. I need to do this. I want to do this. You have to let me. So it's like, oh, fine, all right then. So they load up the kiddies into the Humanitas and Colin Farrell goes with them and they blast off into space. And then it cuts to 10 years later when all of the little ART boys and girls are now in their teens. They're about 16, 17. And uh, they've all been given uh, different tasks on the ship. It's like sort of a very communal atmosphere, but with Colin Farrell as their chief officer of sorts slash parental figure slash mental educator. He's just there for whatever they need, for any instruction, be it uh, emotional support or, you know, guidance with uh, task allocation and anything and everything. He's there to help them with their growing pains, more or less. And um, the kids, uh, every mealtime, they are given this uh, liquid drink referred to as the blue because of its sort of oceanic blue colour. And one afternoon, uh, what is essentially the focal character in the film, uh, Christopher, played by Ty Sheridan, who functions as the Humanitas' uh, botanist studying all of the Earth um, 
flora and well, but, but hypothetical flora on um, other planets. He deduces that uh, the blue is actually, it's got a sort of quasi-soporific qualities. The reason they give it to the kids is to suppress their libido and to keep their personalities very dull and very docile and make it virtually impossible for them to actually react to any kind of stimuli so that they will just get on with their intended purpose in lieu of having organic, individuated personalities. And so Christopher discovers this through some whiz-kidding, basically, and um, he stops taking the blue and he encourages his best friend, Zach, played by Fionn Whitehead, to also stop taking the blue. And this starts to circulate, uh, this secret that he's discovered. And eventually all of the kids begin to wean themselves off the blue. So their sex drives, um, teenage sex drives, they're nightmarish at any given time. But sure. when this is one. These are ones. This is going to become the boat that rocked. Right? Yeah, the, these are these are sex drives that have been suppressed right until now, from conception until now. Jesus, in seventeen-year-olds who are also discovering exactly what it feels like to experience all other kind of. Uh, physiological phenomena. I'd say this does sound like the setup to a sci-fi porn. Um, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I'm not surprised you would read it that way. It could then veer it, yeah. off into endless scenes of uh, ecstasy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it could. I assume it doesn't. It could be. No, it doesn't really. It could become a very horny porno, though. You are correct. <laughs> so, uh, Richard, old Mister Farrell, he clocks that the kids have cottoned on to the fact that there's things that he has been strictly prohibited from revealing to them, such as the fact that uh, the blue is uh, something that's used to drug them and there are secret compartments on the ship that are intended for the third generation that will reach the new inhabitable planet. And he feels remorseful about having to keep it from them, but orders are orders. But the longer that all of the teenagers uh, refuse to imbibe their own soma, if you like, uh, the more... Christopher's friend Zach, Fionn Whitehead, begins to show sociopathic tendencies. And well, as his sex drive awakens, it awakens in a rather predatory way because uh, another focal character in the film, uh, Sailor, who is the, she's about 16, 17, she's the ship's doctor, played by Lily Rose Depp. Oh, okay. Johnny's kid. Mm -hmm. She has something of a close friendship with Farrell's character, and he's been telling her about his life back on Earth, which he wasn't supposed to reveal to anyone. It's another bit of protocol that he's broken, but he does it because he does empathise with these children and he sort of violates his guidelines because you know they are still human children to them, even though they have been codified for a sort of clinical purpose. He does still feel for them, so he doesn't want to just treat them like things. And so he tries to exhibit as much warmth as he can whilst doing being professional. But essentially, shit starts to go absolutely haywire. Christopher, the botanist who discovered, you know, the sort of murkily conspiratorial surface of the blue and stuff, he tries to maintain order, but Zach grows more and more crazy um, with his like, lust for sex, lust for power, burgeoning appetite for violence. And so it's essentially the kids struggling to maintain order in what is, you know, it's, uh, this film is essentially described as Lord of the Flies in space. And that is apt in a nutshell because it's this, it's a microcosm of society on an interstellar aircraft where 
the power brokers, I won't spoil too much, but the power brokers are a bunch of people who aren't even 20 years old yet, who have had everything organic about them stunted until now, but that stops and eventually it all kicks off in a manner that you would naturally, you would intuitively expect it to kick Madness off. ensues. Essentially, yeah. So t- violent, horny, uh, crazy teenagers in space. Some of them want to fuck shit up and go completely mental and some of them would rather not. <laughs> okay. So sorry, uh, sorry if that was a bit rambling there, but you 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 get you get the gist. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay, so what can we say about Voyagers? Well, I mean, it's it's a very it's a good looking film. I like it. The director of photography is um Enrique Chediak. He, he yeah, he does have like a keen eye. It has there are very nice sort of science fiction furnishings with large sort of uh, bright white rooms, and there's a lot of pretty visuals in the film. Um. With regards to the blue, this uh, drink intended to lull the kiddies into subservience. Interesting little nod to Soma of Brave New World and stuff like that, as I said. However, I do get the feeling that it might be a way of trying to smooth over the fact that you never really forget the fact that you're watching people acting. That's not to say that any of the performances in this are bad. I wouldn't single any of them out as bad. In fact, I'd say the most interesting character is probably Richard, as played by Colin Farrell. But uh, for reasons I won't reveal, he doesn't have... His screen time does not last the duration. And I wish they'd gone a different way on that because he was definitely the player I found the most interesting. I mean, Ty Sheridan is good. Fionn Whitehead is good. Lily Rose Depp is good. But none of them... None of them occupied their roles in a way that jumped out at me and thought, wow, you know, they really lead this piece or, you know, this this is a performance that really underpins everything else that's going on here. And ultimately, the film gets too bogged down in the visceral thriller elements of its teenagers trapped in space, breaking off into factions conceit. And it only skirts over the philosophical implications of this premise, you know, so it's a generation ship. It's going to take 86 years to get there. These kids who are now 17 have been on this ship since they were about, you know, five, six or seven years, since they were little. And they know that they are intended to have children who will then grow up and have their own children. So they are well aware of the fact that this is their life now. They will never leave this ship. They will live out their lives and die on it. And it's going to be their grandchildren who reach this new Eden for humanity, if you will. And it it really kind of perfunctorily examines the existential slant of that, which I was a little bit disappointed by because the little tidbits of dialogue that do touch on it is like, well, yeah, you know, that's a good point. And, you know, it's, it's something of an, of an evocative point. But it sort of gets discarded and then they scramble to make it relevant again at the end with this with sort of like looming and magnificent final shot. But it doesn't really have the emotional carry off that it should have had. So Voyages, it makes a decent time passer, but uh, there's so much potential there that it, it just kind of wasted really. So yeah, it's another it's another example of it doesn't suck, but it's not great. It's frustrating when films write a really cool premise and don't maximise the potential, which is, I know, something we're going to be touching on in the premium when we get around to it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, Voyages, it's all right. 
Yeah. <laughs> Can't really say much about it beyond that. To yeah, be no, fair enough. With you. So, fair enough. Yeah. Nothing particularly exciting going on. No, nah, not, nah, not really, which is, which is sad because it had promise. So next up, we have Without Remorse. Uh, this is a new Amazon Prime original uh, based on Tom Clancy novel directed by Stefano Salima. I feel like I haven't seen a Tom Clancy novel <clears throat> adaptation in ages. Yeah, I think, because um, I know that they did uh, Jack Ryan. Was it? It's a big series at the moment, isn't it, with uh, John Krasinski? Yeah, yeah, and I know that Ben Affleck played uh, Jack Ryan in The Sum of All Fears, and obviously, I mean, iconically, you have Harrison Ford. Mm-hmm. I believe at one point, Alec Baldwin. Yeah, it was Humphrey in October, wasn't it? For a while, yeah, for a while, Tom Clancy was the hot property for yeah, he was, jingoistic yeah. American yeah, for adaptation. Yeah, you know, not a 90s household name, mate, in yeah, the whole land, yeah. most definitely. So this is based on the very first John Kelly novel by Clancy. This is uh, John Kelly's a character who occupies the Ryan verse. And he, he's been called by the he's been cited by the author as the darker counterpart to Jack Ryan in terms of the you know the U.S. intelligence and uh, military sphere, and uh, he's played by Michael B. Jordan, senior chief Kelly, and he's the head of a team of U.S. Navy SEALs who are in Aleppo in Syria, and they are tasked with extracting a CIA operative and escorting him safely back home to the good old U.S. of A. But uh, then they find out during the mission that what they've actually been brought there for is to destroy a, a dumping ground for uh, like Russian army-issued uh, weapons. They've been sent there to uh, munner it, blow it all up. This is something that was unknown to Kelly. He's very upset about it. And he has words with these obnoxious CIA officer, Bob Ritter, played by Jamie Bell, gives off very uh, aloof and uh, insouciant superior vibes, just like, oh, well, you know, if I told you that's what we're here for, you wouldn't have done it, would you? And Kelly's not very happy about that. So anyway, they get back home and everyone's going about their lives. Kelly's got a pregnant wife and he's very much, you know, looking to uh, his like daughter coming along. But then one night, Kelly's fellow personnel on the mission, they start getting whacked out. One guy gets run over rather viciously with a van. Um, another guy is shot up in his car. And eventually these shadowy motherfuckers, whoever they are, they come to Kelly's house when he is downstairs listening to music one night and his wife is slumbering upstairs in bed. Um, they go upstairs Kelly tries to intercept him when he hears a noise. Uh, he manages to take a few of them down, but he gets critically wounded. His wife, unfortunately, is murdered along with his unborn infant. And he's taken to hospital where he is just about stabilised. And then he contacts his commanding officer, Lieutenant Commander Karen Greer, played by the wonderful Jodie Turner-Smith, who I thought was absolutely amazing in Queen and Slim. That was one of my favourites. And... Herself, along with Secretary of Defence Thomas Gray, played by Guy Pearce, they have a suspicion that there was some sort of leak. There's a mole who had leaked out the identities of Kelly and his team. And this, uh, these attacks were coordinated retaliation for the destruction of the aforementioned um, Russian army weapons dumping facility in Aleppo. And so after Kelly has had some convalescence, he decides that he's going to go after his wife's killers. But in the process, he discovers a, essentially an ever-deepening conspiracy and he's not really sure who he can trust. You know, Jamie Bell is Bob Ritter, you know. He's Classic just, Tom Clancy, who yeah, can I trust? Yeah, he's just... He's just America, that's yeah. who you can trust. 
Is it um, Bill Bailey who said that, um, like, was it that Jane Austen novels would be better if they were written by Tom Clancy? <laughs> you know, like, good, like, you know, aristocracy, the aristocratic good prevails with the use of vastly superior automatic weapons. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I'm very heavily paraphrasing so that. So it's at this point that it descends into a Tom Clancy. Yes. That's what we're saying. Yeah. And okay. basically, this is a textbook example of what would happen if you gave a relatively robust AOA the command give me a script to an action thriller. <laughs> it, it, it is it is that rote. So Michael B. Jordan, who I like a lot, loved him ever since I first saw him as Wallace in The Wire, and I thought he was great in Fruitvale Station. He, I, I really like the guy. He's a very talented guy. He's been great in lots of things. There's nothing wrong with his performance, but it is mechanical. You know, he's a buff, gruff, hardened, solid motherfucker, um, you know, who can look fierce and tough while still emoting the fact that he is a good, you know, he's a he's a patriot underneath. He's a he's a patriot with a heart of gold, but who needs to kick ass and kill when it's necessary. And that's what he does. Jamie Bell is the CIA commander who is a bit of a dick, and that's what he does. <laughs> you know, um Jody yeah. Turner Smith. You know, is is empathic as Lieutenant Commander Greer, one of the few people who is on Kelly's side, and she's one of the good guys, and that's what she does. You know, everyone in would this it be film, accurate to say? I mean, I've seen a lot of these. You've seen a lot of these. Everybody who watches films has seen a lot of these. Would it be accurate to say that the film that I'm picturing in my head is this film? Yes. Yeah. There's Ev no, no surprises. No. Everyone. Everyone is functional, and all of the twists are things you see coming from a mile off. What can you say that's good about Without Remorse? The the fight sequences are pretty entertaining. <laughs> There's a scene where Kelly is uh, actually banged up in a penitentiary and his cell gets stormed and the way that he takes them down in sort of like close quarters melee combat is quite well it's well choreographed it's quite, quite looks quite good the the violence in it is good <laughs> but apart, as with regards to the narrative very predictable the acting none of the acting is bad it is literally is baseline functionary it is just the acting in this film just gets the job done none of it's crap none of it's you, you, none, but none of it's uh, something that you would look at and go, "Oh, that that was good. That was uh, I like the delivery on that. That was really, it's very very middle ground, very boilerplate, very functional. It does what it needs to do. It does what it says on the tin. So the only thing you, yeah, fundamentally, the only thing you could say about remorse is don't expect any interesting plot developments because they're not there. There's nothing wow about this script whatsoever. It's just lots of. Smashy, bangy, punchy, shooty, blow them up. Good versus evil. You don't get any pointers for guessing who comes out on top. <laughs> it's, it, it's, Does America lose? Huh? Does America lose? Well, no, of course. You know they don't. <laughs> you know that you it's know. only no. the audience that loses. <laughs> <laughs> no. If you're bored on a Friday night, frankly, if you're bored any night of the week, and you literally, you, you, you rifled through so many titles in your head and you're you're not in the mood for any of them, but you think, I just, I want to get a bit pissed and maybe eat some popcorn or similarly delicious yet horribly unhealthy shit. And I just want to watch something where I don't have to use my brain and something that taps into my viscera a little bit. I think without remorse is pretty much the, that'll get the job done. That And that's all you can really say about it. <laughs> No, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it so, just it just is. It exists 
it has a specific, a very specific utility, and it does it. So, so two quite middling reviews then, really. No, nothing particularly special, but nothing god-awful either. Yeah, but the, see, the thing is, Without Remorse doesn't promise something that it doesn't deliver on. Voyagers does. Ah, uh, okay. Because as yeah. I said, Voyagers has a very interesting conceit, and there was a lot of potential to milk from that on philosophical grounds, and that didn't actually hit the mark. Without Remorse just does what it does, and then it's not pretending from the outset to be anything else. So the better of the two, then? Arguably, yes. Oh, right. uh, yeah. In in terms of in terms of intent, in terms of uh, what it what it gives the audience, the expectation it gives the audience, you could argue that uh, without remorse is the film that has more honour in it. Okay, you know. So there you go. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, nothing to uh, bleat and rave about this week, but that's what I watched. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah. Okay, then that brings me on to TV of the week. Two things to talk about, and would you believe it? One of them is a docuseries. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but first things first, there has been a big new release on Netflix. Everyone is talking about it at the moment. And you'll have to forgive me on this one because it's a fantasy series. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those fantasy series that decides what it's going to do is in its very first episode, it's going to front load just about all of its characters and all of its lore and everything that's going on in this universe all in the first hour, which means it's an absolute fucking nightmare for reviewers. And how are we going to sum this up in a nice, you know, I've got about 10 to 15 minutes to review this thing. If I were to sit here and tell you everything that happens in the first episode in sequence, we would be here for the next hour. I thought you would, do you know what? I really thought for some reason that you were going to use the word clusterfuck. No, (laughs) yeah, I I will get on, obviously, to what I think about it. What I've decided to do is essentially give the cliff notes as to what this is about. Okay. I'm going to not necessarily fudge it, but I'm going to do the story through lines to give you a sense and an idea of what's going on. And then I'm going to get into a discussion of the law and the world building and all that sort of stuff, Mm. okay? So anybody listening, and this is based on a very popular series of books as well. So if I get anything wrong here or if I do something in the wrong sequence or anything like that, please forgive me. But if you've seen the first episode of this, as I imagine some of our listeners have, you'll know what I mean. Because if you look up the reviews for this show, just about everyone goes, the first episode, I didn't know what the hell was going on. So just <laughs> bear with me on this. Okay, I'm going to try and do it as cliff notesy as possible. So this is set in a fantasy universe. Um, it's called Shadow and Bone. And it's based on a uh, series of novels by Leigh Bardugo, which is one of those names that I'm certain I've mispronounced the second I've said it. And they are very, very popular indeed. And she has created what is referred to as the Grisha verse. So this is her fantasy universe. And first thing to say before we even set up the plot on it is it's not quite your fantasy universe you're probably expecting. Whenever we say fantasy, you think sort of swords and sorcery and medieval kind of, uh, you know, medieval dimensional setting. Yeah, yeah, you you know what I mean. It's not quite that. It's more of a, there is magic. Oh, it's referred to as the small sciences within this. Right. There are uh, mages and sort of wizard-like people who control magic. But in terms of aesthetic, it's much more um, sort of Tsarist Russian. That's sort of a 1900s, turn of the century, um, World War I aesthetic mixed in with a bit of the magical mythos thing going on. Okay. Okay, so here is our plot through line. We meet uh, Jessie Mae Lee, who's playing Alina Starkov. And she is a cartographer for what is referred to as the First Army. And they are in East Ravka, one of the fictional nations of this fantasy world. And 
she meets up with her friend Mel, who's played by Archie Renault. And it's revealed that they are old childhood friends. In fact, they grew up in an orphanage together. But because they're both part of the army in East Ragford, they haven't, um, they haven't met each other in quite some time. So they're reunited. And they're about to set off on a journey across what is referred to as the Shadow Fold. Now, separating East Ravka and West Ravka is this huge, dark, ominous storm cloud that seems to appear from the desert in front of them. And they are given orders by their commander to travel across the fold to the other side and pick up a mysterious MacGuffin and bring it back. So they're preparing themselves to get on board this sail ship that is actually going to go across sand and into the fold, come out the other side, pick up mysterious object, and come back again. So they get on board the ship. One of the mages, one of the magic users, I keep wanting to say magic, it'll really annoy fans of the series because it's the small sciences, it's not magic. I'm sorry, (laughs) it's fucking magic, okay? They have have a mage on board that is going to provide wind for this sail ship, and off they set up into the fold. Once inside, the fold is a very dark and scary place. It's very dark and mysterious and swirly and they're not allowed to use any lights on board the ship. They just have a blue magic lamp and there's lots of grunting and grinding and horrible noises in the distance. Unfortunately for them, somebody on board the ship lights a fire. And everyone goes, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Don't light a fire. They will come. And what appears are what are referred to as the Volcra. And these are big winged demon-like creatures that suddenly start swarming the ship and murdering everybody on board. Alina is thrown to the ground. She's pretty much huddled in a corner watching all this violence and horror happen around her. Her friend Mal is desperately attempting to protect her when he is grabbed by one of these horrible creatures and is about to be murdered. It is at this point that she begins to glow and a huge light emits from her person and we get a cut. On the other side of the fold, there are a bunch of soldiers waiting for this ship to come through and it's been far too long. And they're looking at their watches thinking, well, they obviously got murdered by the horrible beasties that lurk within until all of a sudden a survivor comes running out in front of the ship. The ship did in fact make it. They all get pulled from the ship. They're all ripped to shreds. Everyone's in a terrible state. Mal has been horribly injured. It's taken away to a healer. So again, this is a different type of mage within the world that heals wounds. There's all different types of magic users, fire summoners and people like that. And they say, you know, what the hell happened? And one of the soldiers says, it was incredible that girl, she suddenly started emitting light from all over. And I don't know how she did it, but all of a sudden we were through to the other side. So Mal is laid up in a medical tent. He's taken away from his friend Alina. She is taken to meet General Kirigan, played by Ben Barnes, who is a shadow summoner, occasionally referred to as the Darkling. And he's one of the generals of this army. And his magical power is, as his name suggests, he's able to summon the darkness and shadowy creatures and manipulate sort of a dark magic around him. He takes her into a tent. He grabs her arm and makes a cut in her arm. And all of this white light bleeds out. And he goes, oh my God, you are a sun summoner. Now, sun summoners in this world are a sort of mythical magic user. They've been talked about they're, they're in antiquity. There's always been this sort of mythos kind of thing that one day there will be a sun summoner, but no one's ever come across one before. And she is apparently one. So General Kirigan decides to take her to the king of Ravka to show that he now has a sun summoner. And if she can be trained with the king of Ravka's mages and all these magic users, then she can perhaps use her sun powers to destroy the shadow fold and make things better for everybody. Meanwhile, 
Freddie Carter, who's playing uh, Kaz Brecker, owns a, a establishment called The Crow on the, I believe it's the west side of Ravka. And he's involved in all kinds of dodgy dealings and art heists and that sort of thing. He's got a motley crew of mates around him. And so he is hired by an incoming mob boss to the area to take his motley crew of mates and to go and kidnap the Sun Summoner and bring her back for nefarious purposes. Now, I know I made a little bit of a mess of that. You try watching the first fucking episode. Because this is one of those shows that, like I said, one of the problems is I watch a lot of fantasy, I read a lot of fantasy, and I play a lot of video games, especially RPGs as well. And a lot of them do this thing where they throw you into a fantasy world and they expect you to pick it up as you go along. And I'm not a stupid man, but I watched the first episode, my head held in my hands going, how am I going to explain all of this on the podcast? Because what I managed to pick out of there is so obtusely done <laughs> with all these wrapping, all, all the names, like character names and place names and different bits of geography and all that, it just throws at you. And they're all very sort of Slavic and Cyrillic. And just for me personally, they just wouldn't bloody go in. And I'm sitting there going, oh no, I've forgotten what's going on already. What it does make clear though, thankfully, as the episodes continue, it actually manages to spread that narrative out to a point where I go, okay, I get it. She's being taken here because she's the sun summoner and she can uh, end the shadow fold. These guys are coming over as a crew to kidnap her because they're being blackmailed by Macy back at home. Those aren't hard plot points, but they're put underneath so many layers of fantasy, I'm going to say it, bollocks. (laughs) It's actually quite hard to decipher. Now, let's talk about Shadow and Bone as a series. A lot of people have been tipping this to be the new Game of Thrones. And I think what they mean by that is the new fantasy series put into TV series format based on a series of books that's going to be huge and everyone's going to be talking about it. I wouldn't quite go that far. It's got a little touch of what of the ropies about it, but only a little. Ultimately, fantasy shows for me live and die on their world building. The world has to be interesting. The world has to feel lived in. The world has to have facets and layers to it where you can see the plot spreading out from there. And actually, Shadow and Bone does have that. The performances are okay. The plotting of it actually spreads out rather nicely. When I watched the first episode, I thought, as you said at the start, clusterfuck. I thought, oh no, this is going to be one of those ones that actually, it never explains itself. It moves too quickly. It doesn't, uh, you you can't hang on to anything and it's all going to fall apart. Actually, overall, I didn't think that was a problem by the end of it. That first episode throws everybody for a loop. I was very encouraged today when I was doing my research on it and looking up other people's reviews of it to find that this does seem to be the consensus. The first episode is a bit of a mess, but once you get through it, the show opens out and it's actually quite enjoyable. And I had a similar experience, I have to say. I don't think it's going to be the latest and greatest fantasy series. It's got a bit of the Netflix... Um, there's a certain visual thing that Netflix does. There's a certain, I don't know whether it's a filter they use or something like that. There's a certain plasticky graininess, if that makes well, sense. We've spoken you know about the product, kind of typical production values on Netflix it, originals before. It's odd because the CGI does actually look very, very good. It's more about there's some sort of digitally grainy filter they put on a lot of things that makes it just look a little bit hokey and it does have a touch of that. All of that being said, though, and one of the things this is labelled as is a teen drama. And that immediately makes me shudder a little bit for reasons I explained in my Irregulars review the other week. If it is a teen drama, though, I didn't notice, which is kind of good. 
I mean, it's got younger characters and the younger characters go through difficulties along their way towards the fantasy plot conclusion. But I didn't feel like it was too... Um, yeah, well, my problem with the Irregulars was it was like adults speaking down to children. I didn't get a sense of this at all. I actually believed the characters. And you know what? I consumed it all within two sittings. There's eight episodes. I did it over two days. And at the end of the series, this very obviously is supposed to be the end of the first book. And the characters are now going to a different place entirely. They've resolved what's happened in season one. They're now off to go and explore a different part of the world in season two where other things will happen. And I felt a little bit disappointed at the end of it because I wanted to see what they were going to do world building wise with where they're going at the end of season one. And to me, if a fantasy show does that, where it's got me going, oh, I'd actually really like to see more of that world, then ultimately it is effective. Like I said, Game of Thrones killer or the new Game of Thrones, I think is overselling it quite a lot. That being said, it is, it's robust. There's a robust world there. There's robust performances. And there's once you get some of the fantasy nonsense out of the way and place names that you're expected to remember that really, really just didn't go in for me. Once you get that out of the way, I think there actually is a decent fantasy show underneath. And overall, I did quite enjoy it. So it is a bit of a recommendation, actually. I would say stick with it. Sort of, sort of turn your brain off and let it come in by osmosis. But in order, for, in order for me to explain why I would have to go further into the plot than the setup, and obviously that would be going to spoiler territory and that would ruin it for people that haven't watched it yet. But overall, is it worth it as an experience? Yeah, I, I, it's got some legs and I'd be interested to see more. Yeah, fair enough. Second thing I want to talk about, this is a documentary that is only available on Hulu. Oh, um, right. So for US listeners, you're all sorted if you've got a Hulu subscription. <laughs> uh, the rest of us, I highly recommend a VPN. And as we always say, there's always other ways of getting hold of it. We well. don't know about them, though. No, no, not no at idea. all. But yes, there are, of course, other ways of getting hold of it. Um, and this is a docuseries, and the title alone immediately made me have to watch it, because this is entitled Sasquatch. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's not quite what you might think. So It's not about Sasquatch? Well, well here, we, here we go. Let me do the setup <laughs> for you. So we meet David Holthouse, who is an investigative journalist. And he starts out by giving a monologue to an interviewer off camera. Who, and he recounts an incident in his life in the early 90s. So in the early 90s, he went up to Northern California to work on an illegal pot farm, a marijuana farm out in the woods. And turned up on a rainy evening and discovered that it was much harder work than he was initially expecting. Pretty grim up there, not a lot of facilities. You work long, long hours in the fields. You've got the constant sort of worry about police surveillance and being raided and generally having a pretty shit time of things. But he sort of sets his, himself up for this life there. And one evening he's in the cabin with the owner of this pot farm. And two guys come screaming through the door. Absolutely terrified, completely grey, drenched in sweat. The owner of the pot farm asked them, yeah, what the hell is going on? And then they are speaking in super rapid fire sentences and they say, they were just torn apart, man. They were, they were just absolutely, they were, they were torn apart, man. It was fucking Sasquatch. It was fucking Sasquatch. And the story that they recount is that they, there were always rumours that no one really believed while they were up there, that there was Sasquatch out in the forest and occasionally they throw rocks at you. And you shouldn't be out you know, late at night or whatever because Bigfoot would come and fucking eat you, right? And these are sort of 
tall tales they told each other and laughed about while they were working in the fields. But these guys came running in and said that they'd seen people murdered by them. And what they talked about were some Mexican immigrants that they'd come across that had been out working the fields at night when they shouldn't have been. And they were found torn to pieces, as in like arms and legs pulled off, um, scalped, bits of them thrown all over the place, killed in a way that no human being would ever bother to kill someone or perhaps didn't even possess the strength to kill someone. Right. So, and they believed it was, you know, Sasquatch is real. That's what happened to these immigrant farmers. So anyway, David Holthouse, sort of, they had a laugh about it afterwards. They brushed it off as, you know, what the hell were those guys talking about? He goes on to become a real serious investigative journalist. And he specialized in going after, as he terms it, monsters. But, real monsters, um, far-right extremist groups and that sort of thing. That was his speciality. He'd shave his head, he'd infiltrate within these groups, and then he'd write articles about it afterwards. So this is a man that's drawn to dangerous stories. And over the years, he just couldn't get this story out of his head that these immigrants were pulled apart by seemingly some sort of metaphysical Bigfoot monster. It didn't really add up, but these guys seemed absolutely terrified. He believed that they saw what they saw, but he couldn't really bring himself to believe that it was Sasquatch. So he decides to go back to the North California mountains, these huge woodland areas where these pot farms still are to this day, and try and deduce what actually happened and what what went wrong. How did these murders actually occur? So, as you correctly intuited, with the title Sasquatch, you would assume there's going to be a lot of... um, wild and crazy Sasquatch hunter characters and a discussion on cryptozoology. People who look like the guy with the hair from Ancient Aliens. Yeah. Swearing blind that he knows that Sasquatches exist, etc. The first episode definitely has a lot of that. Where they go, <laughs> they go and interview like Sasquatch hunters and there's a university professor that actually just genuinely believes in them despite he's got a degree in biology and all this kind of stuff. So you get a bit of discussion of that and you're thinking to yourself, okay, good. You're kind of hoping, I think most people were hoping when they saw the title of this, that what this is going to be is Tiger King, but for cryptozoology and all these crazy nut jobs. That See, are... Now that sounds interesting. Sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not though. What this is, is a classic bait and switch of a documentary because the first episode focuses on the Sasquatch thing. But the documentary sort of correctly realizes that no one's really buying that. Sure. So... What it's pretending to be with its title and the way it's been marketed, I know this is a bit of a giveaway, but there's no other way to talk about it otherwise because that's not what it's actually about. What it's actually about is discovering what's going on with these pot farms in the North California mountains and the craziness of the lifestyle up there and what's happening to people up there, which actually is a lot scarier than the idea of a big monkey man walking through the, you know, with red eyes, coming through the wilderness at night, throwing rocks at people and occasionally ripping someone to shreds. It's revealing a hidden society and a hidden world up there that really does exist and is scarier than Sasquatch itself. So Sasquatch is not about the monster. It's about the monsters in men, so to speak. So we're basically talking about organized crime. Yeah, I, I don't want to go too far into that because okay. it, it's only three episodes long, this as well. Right. And I kind of feel bad by you saying it's a bait and switch because that's sort of a giveaway, but then there's no other way to talk about it. Sure. Other than, I, I could just sit here and say, oh, it's a documentary that calls itself Sasquatch, but it's not actually about Sasquatch. Yeah, then there's no review. But I think this is going to split people right down the middle because 50% of people, I think, will be disappointed 
that it's not that Tiger King discussion into cryptozoology that actually does sound very entertaining. You're right, on paper. That's kind of what everyone was hoping it would be. A pure exotic equivalent of a Bigfoot fanatic yeah. is, yeah. Yeah, but what I actually found, I thought the switcheroo and the point that it was trying to make and the fact that it's actually about something else entirely and that that's worse than the monster in the forest, I thought was actually really cleverly done. And I think it's very revealing of a, a segment of the world that I really didn't know much about. And the big point of this is what he uncovers during his investigation, nobody really knows about. It's really sort of groundbreaking stuff. It's, nobody's really been able to focus on this sort of stuff before, primarily because it's so dangerous. And it's a few people have described this as being scary. I wouldn't say it's scary. It's quite eerie at points, though. And it's, there's sort of animated segments that are quite um, surreal and quite, it sets an atmosphere and a tone. And I found, I found it compelling and I found it artful. And I really, really admired the people that made it. And I really admired David Holthouse as well for the, the way he committed himself. He's one of those journalists that just, he, he's a pure journalist. He has to chase the story down. He has to get himself into nasty situations. He has to throw himself into it because otherwise it will bug him until the end of time. And that really comes across. So you sort of go on this journey with him. And I thought it was a real artful piece of work. It's about real life monsters and not about the mythical monster. And I thought that was clever, and I think it's really well done, and I think it's definitely worth a watch. Well, it sounds very intriguing. That's oh. good. Yeah, I, I, I hope I've been intriguing with this review, because I, I think people are going to be disappointed because they were hoping for Sasquatch, but ultimately, what's underneath, I think, is actually maybe even it's better than that. It's, it's darker than that, and it's uh, more thought-provoking. Well, I, um, I like documentaries. I know it's, I mean, it's obviously something that in terms of the subject matter, is a world away. But another recall to that one that I reviewed many moons ago, that uh, there are no fakes. Mm. Something that you initially feel is going to be all about these weird, cliquey spats between eccentric art, art collectors in Canada, which is entertaining enough, don't get me wrong. But then when it, you know, it does a complete left-field expose on horrible, horrible crime rings operating in uh, the northern area of that province, like lifting a lid on things that nobody, as you say, these netherworlds that people were completely and utterly in the dark about. I'm greatly appreciative when something does that. So. Yeah, it, it's artfully done, and I, I really liked it. It's very compelling and, and nicely done. Piece. Sounds like something to check out, man. Mm, definitely. You, would, you would really enjoy it. Cool. Really um, despite the fact that Sasquatch isn't really about Sasquatch, that hasn't stopped me from doing Sasquatch trivia. I hoped it wouldn't. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> Come on, too much fun, right? So let's have a bit of this to finish off with. The British explorer David Thompson is sometimes credited with the first discovery of a set of Sasquatch footprints in 1811. And hundreds of alleged prints have been adduced since then. That's a good word, adduced. Mm. Visual sightings and even alleged photographs and filmings, notably by Roger Patterson at Bluff Creek, California, have also contributed to the legend, although none of the purported evidence has been verified. Sasquatch is variably described as a primate ranging from 6 to 15 feet tall, standing erect on two feet, often giving off a foul smell, and either moving silently or emitting a high-pitched cry. Footprints have measured up to 24 inches in length and 8 inches in width. A Soviet scientist, Boris Porshnev, suggested that Sasquatch and his Siberian counterpart, the Almus, could be a remnant of Neanderthals, but most scientists do not recognise the creature's existence. Uh, well, it hasn't been falsified yet, so... I'd love to believe that, you know, uh, there was that whole thing like giant squid, 
were considered mythical for a very long time and then were discovered to be real things. I'd love for there to be you know, the hairy was, men. Was you, there. there are some... Um... Some people have actually theorised that uh, megalodons just went deep. Yeah, there is a. There's no real evidence for it, but there's obviously a possibility that those giant great white shark progenitors, um, yeah, they they didn't disappear off the planet; they just went deeper. Again, I'd sort of like that to be true, and sort of not actually. Native Americans in Oregon have increasingly situated Bigfoot within traditional belief systems as beings with deeply rooted cultural significance. Tribes in coastal Oregon related Bigfoot to ancient tales of wild men who lurked near villages and left immense tracks, as described in Carla Pearson's Tales from, from the Nehalem Tillamook. Members of Plateau tribes, such as those of the Warm Springs Reservation, identify Bigfoot as a stick Indian, a diverse category of potentially hostile beings who stole salmon or confused people by whistling, causing them to become lost. Sightings and stories continue on reservations today, representing a spiritual connection to the pre-contact past and the resilience of indigenous cultural heritage. Hmm. It's very intriguing, I thought. The reservation, American... is that on again, sorry? Uh, the Warm Springs Reservation. Okay, cool. Which is in uh, Oregon, apparently. In 1965, Bigfoot was officially put on the endangered species list in Russia. Germany and France followed suit in 1967. Okay, that's a little bit weird. Yeah, uh, endangered species, not non-existent. Species. I think, yeah, you, you, I mean, you, you would have to uh, actually verify the existence first, you know, <laughs> as an antecedent to that measure, but okay. You would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. You would think. America may be divided by red and blue states, but virtually every state is a monster state. Just as each has its own flag, most have an unusual creature people have been claiming to see for years. Bigfoot is the most well-known but thousands of people say they've seen all kinds of wolfmen, prehistoric birds, giant bats, and bizarre creatures living among us. In this United States of monsters, some creatures have been sighted so often they've become virtual celebrities. There's the Jersey Devil, a creature so real that police with bloodhounds reportedly once tried to corner it. The Dover Demon, a Massachusetts monster that climbs walls like an insect and has an egg-shaped head. And the Mothman, a huge winged creature with red eyes that has supposedly chased terrified drivers in West Virginia. If that's true, I wonder what New Mexico's is. Because you know, I know Mexicans have the chupacabra. No, Mexicans they? do, but yeah, in, I don't know whether that translates yeah. to New Mexico. Because I've been to New Mexico twice now, and it's a wonderful state. And I'm just wondering what their nominal. I imagine is. they have one. Yeah, by the, the sounds of this, there is like a a lot of them adopt them as their state mascot. Something psychopathic that eats green chilies. Maybe maybe carries a gun around. I don't know. That would be right at home in New Mexico. And a little bit of little Bigfoot fact here, just to finish off with. You know, I like to put a funny one at the end. Yeah. I, I knew this one to make you laugh. Are you ready? If you're confronted by Bigfoot, offering it food will provide you with an 80% chance of survival, while crying will provoke the animal to punch you in the face. According to Bigfoot Finder, a website dedicated to spotting the creature. If that's true, I like it. <laughs> Don't cry in front of Bigfoot. He just decks you on. <laughs> you fucking pussy. <laughs> Okay, that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we're off to record our premium podcast now. Liam's got some extra takes to get through, I believe. I do indeed, and one of them is actually one of the titles that you coincidentally mentioned at the start. 
Oh, really? So, so which one? L. Oh, right, yes, of course, yeah. Because you mentioned uh, Benedetta and, uh, yeah, L with uh, the wonderful Isabel Huppert is one of the films that I've got in my extra takes. Superb. And we're also going to have a bit of a chat about, and this is a well-worn theme on the internet, but why don't people remake bad movies? Or why don't studios remake bad movies rather than good ones? Yeah, see, I've, I mean, essentially, I've worked from that same uh point but uh I've, I've sort of gone with the subheading of uh films that wasted a brilliant concept sure because that, i think they implicitly they are due for a fucking remake can't they yeah so, so we're, we're going to go for some bad movies that we think actually could be done properly with the right director etc etc so if you'd like to hear us waffle on about that bollocks <laughs> please, <laughs> please do consider signing up to our patreon page uh, check out cinementalist.com for a link also please do follow us on twitter at cinementalcast and you can follow liam at Liam at the movies at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Fantastic. Okay, well, I hope to see you on the premium one, if not free one, next week. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Thank you, people. <laughs> <laughs>